0: 2023 has not been an easy year for a lot of people. Not only are many of us coping with economic instability, but our culture is polarized and often extremely hostile. But my guest on today's program, the last episode of the year, wants to leave us with a vision of unity and of hope for a better and more harmonious 2024. Monica Harris is a writer and the author of The Illusion of Division. She's also the executive director of the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Monica Harris is my guest today on Lean Out. Monica, welcome to
1: Lean Out. Good to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's so nice to have you on today for the last episode of 2023.
1: And the North
0: Star that, that seems to guide much of your work, that, the title of your book, Overcoming the Illusions of Division, and this idea is exactly the kind of idea I wanted to leave our listeners with for the, for the holiday season, which is really a, a reflective time of year. But before we um, get to that and an and essay that you wrote that I want to ask you about today, I want to share a little bit about your story. So around 12 years ago, you decided you'd had it with the rat race. Right you quit your job as an executive at a fortune 500 company in los angeles you and your partner and son moved to montana now your friends and family colleagues warned you about what you'd find there predominantly white christian conservative community you are black your partner is a white woman and your son is biracial what did you and your family find in montana
1: I think we found surprisingly that there were so many more people who embraced us and welcomed us and looked beyond our differences. And they were there are differences. They're pretty obvious differences. This state is, uh, I would say, ninety three percent white, and as you said, mostly Christian, very heavily uh, heterosexual, and a lot of them, like it's a lot of our friends that we've made here attend church on a more than regular basis like several times a week and you know in some cases we didn't find this out until we got to know them better they weren't proselytizers they were very like open minded which you know surprised us as well so i think that i i think that we were hopeful that we'd be accepted but i think surprised by the degree to which we were accepted And it was really illuminating because we did take leap of faith because it's just big sky country. And we came because we were, uh, we just enjoyed wide open spaces. And we were looking forward to adopting a simpler way of life. We didn't know if it was going to work out. So again, it was a leap of faith, but we were very encouraged that people, people connected with us and we were able to connect them based on bigger picture issues, the common concerns we had. The concerns about traffic in larger cities, we were all trying to get away from traffic in larger cities. Concerns about, you know, making sure that our children were in schools that were a little more wholesome and then weren't exposed to as many um, divisive influences, as many uh, as much drugs and alcohol. And of course, there was the drugs and alcohol in, in Montana as well. But, you know, there were fewer influences than we had in the larger cities I think that people were here just generally want to live a a more simple life. And whether we're gay, we're straight, whether we're black or white, Republican or Democrat, I think a lot of people were drawn to this particular part of the country for the same reasons. And that's what we bonded around. And it's really been a wonderful experience.
0: And in your TED Talk, you tell the story of a particular turning point of encountering a man whom you were a little bit afraid of and and discovering that maybe you had more in common than not. Would you mind just telling us that story again today?
1: Uh, Yeah. So it was spring break, and it actually wasn't in Montana. It was in the Idaho Panhandle, which I think the Southern Poverty Law Center lists as one of the most hateful places in the country, one of the most hateful states because I think there's the highest concentration of hate groups, quote unquote, hate groups in Idaho. So we were going there because we were uh, we were on a budget that year, couldn't go to Hawaii or any place exotic. So we went to this indoor water park at this resort and our son was romping in the pool. And my partner and I were just hanging out, looking at our phones and scrolling through the news. And there'd just been a, a mass shooting, I think, that weekend. Can't remember where it was. There's just been so many mass shootings, it seems. And as we're scrolling through the news and talking, you know, we're discussing the Second Amendment, which my partner and I completely support within reason. We think that Americans should have their right to own arms. We own arms. But we need to be judicious about who has that right. You know, if you have a mental condition, for example, or you've committed a felony, we need thorough background checks to make sure those people don't have access to firearms. So we have a very balanced sense of the Second Amendment, I think. And as we're talking, I'm Noticed this guy behind us, sort of like looking at us, you know, off and on. And whenever I'd look at him, he'd look away. And he had a very particular look, I would say. He was bald, sleeved up with tattoos from his head down to his neck and all over his arms and chest. And he was just looking at me, sort of like inscrutable, is the word I'd use. I couldn't tell whether he was just curious about me or if he wanted me to get the hell out of there. And I think my partner picked up on my apprehension, and she was just kind of urging me to play it cool. And then after a while, he just got up, and he came over and made me a little nervous as I saw him approaching, and I did my best to remain calm. And when he drew up beside us, he said, mind if I sit down? And we're like, okay, I guess we can't really say no, but we didn't know what to expect. And when he sits down, he immediately starts engaging us about guns. He says, I couldn't help but overhear you talking about the Second Amendment. Do you think Americans should have the right to bear arms? And I was initially taken aback because I felt like I was being cornered. And I didn't know how he was going to respond. He looked like a guy who probably slept with a semi-automatic rifle. But I just decided to you know, be bold and be very honest with him and transparent. And I said, listen, I believe in the Second Amendment. I'm a strict constitutionalist. I'm a purist. And I told him my opinions about the reasonable restrictions on guns I thought we should have. And I was fully prepared for him to just go off on me. But he just looked at me and he smiled and said, that's what I think, too. We're on the same page. And for the next hour, we just talked about, you know, the Second Amendment and kids and family and living in Idaho and living in Montana and what was going on in the country. And this is a guy who, I kid you not, looked like a skinhead. He had the teardrop coming down his eye. And if I'd seen him in any other context, I probably would have been terrified. And I was semi-terrified even at this water park. But what blew me away about the experience is that this man who I thought I would have nothing in common with, and more than that, who I thought would look like he might even harm me under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, we actually connected and we had so much in common, not our life experience per se. He wasn't gay, he wasn't black, He didn't go to, I, I doubt he even went to college, to be honest. But we were on the same frequency about what was happening in our country, what the problems were, and what we as Americans needed to do to fix them. And as he got up to leave, he said something I'll never forget. He looked back at me and said, you know what they're trying to do to us, don't you? And I thought, well, who's he referring to? Who are they? And he said, they're trying to divide us. They don't want people like you and me talking. And I I said, who's trying to divide us? And he says, the government, the media. They're absolutely afraid that people like you and me will connect and find common ground. And then he looked at me, continued to look at me and said, but it's not going to happen because you're my sister and I'm your brother and we're all Americans and we're all in this together. And it was pretty powerful because it was the first time, I've never in my life would I have imagined that a man who looks like a, a white supremacist, a skinhead, would consider me his sister and ask that I consider him my brother.
0: Oh, I'm a little choked up listening to that, to be honest. <laughs> I love that story and I love it for so many reasons, Monica. And one of the reasons I love it so much is that's you know, I've been a journalist for, I guess, almost twenty-two years now, and that is my experience of journalism. Over and over and over again, people surprise you all the time, and I really believe that there is just so much more common ground than not. If and- we just
1: give ourselves the opportunity, and I think that's the problem, Tara. Is that so many times we are just afraid to open up and to take a chance and to give others the opportunity to to be in our space and to come into our bubble. And it's not always going to work out, but it's worth, it's really worth taking the chance in my opinion.
0: Mm, Me too. And another thing I've heard you say in regards to all of this is that all of this division, all of these boxes we're putting ourselves in is distracting us from one thing we really do have in common. And for many of us, it's economic precarity. Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Uh, I think class is the elephant in the room. I think that that's one of the things that acquaintance that I met at the water park was trying to get across to me. And at the time when I first moved to Montana, I had I had somewhat of a sense of it. But when I was talking to him, it, it became clear to me that right now, whatever we look like, whatever our sexual orientation is, however we vote, it seems as if 90% of this country, if not more, and I can't speak for Canada, but the United States at least, it seems that most of us are struggling with The challenge of putting food on our tables, the challenge of affordable housing, the challenge of affordable health care, the challenge of keeping our kids away from fentanyl, which has become just an epidemic. The challenge of just keeping our families together in a nuclear fashion. Like right now, one of the things that I'm battling with is my son is constantly on the screen and it's impossible to get him... And I shouldn't say impossible, but it's really difficult to get him to engage with me and my partner in a way that's meaningful. And I realize a lot of this is even coming about because of our schools. Literally all of his assignments now are online. He doesn't have a physical book, he does just very little work that's handwritten. So when we try to take his phone away from him, just to sort of like get him to engage more, the first thing he tells me is, Well, I can't do my schoolwork then. And we go to his teachers. And they confirm this. Everything is being moved online, even though we know from studies that this is incredibly destructive to young developmental minds. So, I mean, there's so many things that are that are happening that, again, they don't have anything to do with whether we're black or white or anything like that. But it's really just a function of like 92% of us being in the same boat now. And I I wish that we could get our elected officials to focus more on that. But I I just it seems that our media and the people we elect are just not interested in paying attention to these issues. And I'm not sure what we have to what we can do to get them to focus on them more, but I know that it's absolutely critical because until we come together, we are never going to be able to move forward. So that's one of the things that I'm sort of I'm I'm really focused on doing. And with my work is trying to get people to fixate less on their differences and focus more on the the crushing class issues, particularly inflation, that are coming at us left and right, front and center.
0: Yeah it's it's a very very similar state of things in Canada right now huge housing crisis major opioid epidemic and and very very high inflation as well. I want to take a moment just to to dive into how you think we got here. So you you recently published an essay on Substack how a global pandemic and the social justice movement undermined America. The context for for this in terms of the US and Canada are, are quite similar actually. We'll talk about some of the causal effects after but But first, in that essay, you you wrote about the dehumanization you experienced as someone who chose not to get vaccinated. This is something we saw a lot of here in Canada with our vaccine mandates, which I was against. There was a really famous cover of the Toronto Star that rehashed Really dehumanizing online messages about unvaccinated Canadians. Everything from unvaccinated people do not deserve ICU beds to I have no empathy left for the willfully unvaccinated. It's just really quite extreme. Uh, and you, as you note in your essay, the, the bank accounts of the truckers who protested the vaccine mandates were frozen. So talk to me a little bit about what life as an unvaccinated person was like during the pandemic and, and what lessons you drew from that experience.
1: Okay, well, so I think I'd like to go back, just sort of step back and think about what struck me most about the pandemic. Like how how we got here was I think the fear. The fear was like nothing I'd ever experienced before in my life. And I compare it to 9 11 which was probably the most traumatizing, fear-laden experience I'd had up until that time, the pandemic felt very different. 9-11, even though all Americans were sort of affected emotionally, the the fear was pretty localized. People who who lived through it in New York City were most deeply affected, like physically, emotionally, spiritually. When the rest of us empathized, right? But we moved through the world cautiously for a few weeks, then we got back to normal. So the fear wasn't constant and, and, and intense. And the pandemic was different. It was like for years, millions of people were just freaked out of their minds, and the fear was off the charts, and it was everywhere. And it was, it was like a sense that our survival was at stake. So it was a fear we carried in our body, our mind, and our spirit. And looking back. I realized that when people are put in such deep and sustained levels of fear, it changes who we are on a fundamental level. It, it, it It's almost like it rewires our brains. And I think the reason I was able to see this relatively early in the pandemic is because I was lucky enough to live outside what I would call the epicenters of the, the major cities like New York, LA, and Seattle. My family lived in Montana, so it was about a, 1 million people there back then. And we were social distancing before the pandemic. So the first few weeks, we were pretty frightened, but it didn't take us long to see who was really being affected, elderly people and people with pre-existing conditions. So within six weeks, we were out of lockdown in Montana. And by the end of 2020, masking had pretty much ended everywhere except the larger cities. So we got back to normal pretty quickly. And that getting back to normal quickly gave me the presence of mind to look outside my bubble and see what was happening to my friends in the epicenters and in Canada. And it was terrifying. And I had trouble expressing this to a lot of people in those areas because I was pretty much crucified on Facebook whenever I tried to give my friends some context about the relative risk of COVID, masking, and especially when it came to vaccination. No one, I mean, no one wanted to hear what I had to say. There was this intense fear and shaming. And interestingly, my partner's mother, who's in her 80s, she was understandably concerned about... The virus and wanted to get vaccinated. And we'd arranged a you know a much needed getaway to meet her in Sedona. And she initially agreed, but then a relative talked her out of joining us for the vacation because we weren't vaccinated. And the concern was that even though she was vaccinated and she was supposedly protected, we being unvaccinated were going to put her in danger. And I mean, we know now that this was completely ludicrous because the vaccinated and unvaccinated spread the virus that essentially the same rate but that's when i got a sense of just how even people we loved forget my friends on facebook but even people we've known all our lives and loved us we were pariahs to them they wanted nothing to do with us and so the other thing that struck me about the pandemic and being unvaccinated was my friend's experience in new york i wrote about him in the article he's unvaccinated and i didn't mention this in the article but he happens to be black too and he pointed out to me that a huge chunk of black people in New York City weren't vaccinated. And there's obviously, you know, history behind that and it's completely understandable. But because they were unvaccinated, they couldn't work. Their children couldn't go to school. They were denied access to public facilities. And what this did was put people at risk at even greater risk in so many ways. And what's weird was that these were the same black lives that a year earlier, People all around America were marching in the streets to defend and protect, but now they were persona non grata. So it's we- it was weird to me. It was suddenly okay to marginalize people who had been historically marginalized. And I remember thinking, there's only one other time in American history when millions of people were denied access to basic resources and public spaces, and now it's happening to those same people again. And that was that was my wake-up call. That's when I really began to see this this disconnect between the systems that profess to protect certain groups and how these same systems can turn on these groups in the blink of an eye. So fast forward to 2022, and that's when I began to see how diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts were really following the same path that I saw based on my friend's experience in New York City with Black people. So I also happen to be gay, and I wrote a piece on Medium earlier this year about my what I think are very genuine concerns that securing rights for transgender Americans shouldn't displace biological women and lesbians. And within 24 hours of my publishing that article in Medium, it was yanked because it was considered hate speech. And I remember thinking, okay, what about my article was hateful? I just was asking very like, sensible, balanced, I thought rational and respectful questions. I wasn't inflammatory. I- used no name calling whatsoever. And of course medium wouldn't give me specifics on why they yanked my article. But I was generally told that I disempowered and excluded others. And when you think about that language, disempower, it presumes that I have power as a gay black woman, which frankly I never knew I had. And apparently I have the power to exclude others. And that was my clue that we were moving into a a new paradigm uh, when protected groups could somehow become powerful and oppressive groups, when victims of um, historical victims of the patriarchy could suddenly become allies of cisgender patriarchy. And so I think what what disturbed me most about that and what I see happening now is that whether we're Jewish or Gentile or vaccinated or unvaccinated or woman by choice or by birth, Black, Latino, white. This this is a problem because if any of us, even those in protected groups, can be labeled dangerous or an oppressor, we can never feel safe. You know, our rights can be stripped from us in the blink of an eye. And I think that's we saw that situation start with the un, with the unvaccinated who weren't in a protected group. That's that's not the issue, but. We dehumanized, or society dehumanized the unvaccinated because they were lesser. They they were taking something from other people. They were taking away the ability to get back to normal because we wouldn't play along. We wouldn't get vaccinated. So it was possible to put us in this separate bucket, bucket uh, this demonized bucket. And when we put people in that demonized bucket, totally dehumanizing them, not allowing them to have access to facilities. Uh, I think Noam Chomsky even said we should fend for ourselves for food. We shouldn't even have access to food with other people in you know, grocery stores. When you when you deny people healthcare, there was even um, unvaccinated people were d- denied in certain states at certain hospitals organ transplants. I mean, there was a there was a sense that we were less than human. And when you think about the level of fear that enables people to treat others in a less than human fashion. And then you sort of link it to what's happening now, or what just happened in October 7th, with um, the brutal terrorist attack in Israel by Hamas. And the way that that attack was defended by, I I, I thought, very well-meaning people, the same people who marched for Black lives, the same people who wanted to keep you know, grandmothers and grandfathers safe during the pandemic. These same good-hearted people literally turned a blind eye and defended terrorist attacks brutal of the, the most brutal nature against people who have historically been unprotected and disenfranchised themselves, Jews. So it's none of it made sense to me, but when I looked at the bigger picture, I could see how we arrived at this point. It's It's been a steady progression of increasing dehumanization of groups that we have suddenly othered and shamed and we rationalize this othering and the shame through fear and other means and it's 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 so disturbing to me because i feel that the line is so gray it's so vague it's so wavy that anyone can be othered at this point anyone can be othered and dehumanized and rights taken away and we would just have no notice and there's really nothing nothing we can do about it so i think it's the work i do at fair i'm i'm executive director of the foundation against intolerance and racism and one of the reasons that i i took this job is because it's an organization that's dedicated to preserving our common humanity and our mutual respect and dignity for other people we are We're committed to the principle that Martin Luther King Jr. introduced decades ago and many people have clearly forgotten. But the idea is that equality should never be selective. And when we attempt to combat racism and intolerance, we can't do it by excluding other people. We should be adding seats to the table instead of taking them away. We have the ability to add leaves and to make the table bigger, right? Add more seats. (laughs) And, and we can create diversity without creating division. Anyway, that's what we're committed to doing at FAIR. And it's really my life's mission right now, making sure that equality is universal and that we make this table bigger so everyone can sit at it and feel safe and know that they'll never be in danger or jeopardized of having their seat taken away.
0: I'm really glad that you touched on the anti-Semitism piece, because we're seeing that in Canada right now. And and the idea that you expressed in the piece of looking around at, at people who you thought you knew, and who your friend thought he knew. And not, I mean, and this is an idea I'm hearing from a lot of Jewish friends right now with the anti-Semitism coming from all directions, but a lot from the left. And I want to go back to something that you you said a little while ago about the role that our mass media is playing in all of this, in stoking these divisions. Of course, I am in the media, so, but I not I, I, mass media. <laughs> I do agree. <laughs> I agree that this is happening. And in the, the newsrooms that I worked in, the the central issue was is groupthink. This inability to look at the complexity and nuance and hold all of these tensions and contradictions and and complexity. I want to in the last few minutes that we have together. I invited you on as a writer today but you of course also had up fair and uh, have taken the helm after a bit of a turbulent period with fair. I want to talk a little bit about how how your own work and fair resists the kind of dehumanization and simplification that you have just been analyzing for us. What do you see as as the way out for us? as a society.
1: Oh, the way out. I think I go back to the experience I've had living here in Montana in which you touched upon which is we're really going to have to start giving each other more grace and the ability to forgive, opening our hearts to the potential to forgive. I think one of the problems we've had well, let's put it this way I mentioned Martin Luther King earlier, and I don't have many heroes in life, probably don't have any except Martin Luther King. My father's not even my hero. But what I love about Martin Luther King is that he had such a spiritual nature. And I think in order for us to move forward, for us to evolve and go to the next level, we are going to have to tap into our spiritual nature. We're going to have to be more aware of our spiritual nature. and. What I loved about Martin Luther King was that he had the ability to forgive and he, he really beseeched anyone who would listen to forgive. And forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. It, it doesn't mean ignoring what other people have done to you, all the bad things they've done to you. I would never ask people to do that, but it does mean remembering what they've done shouldn't keep you from moving forward and expecting the best from them in the future. Giving people a chance to grow, giving them a chance, the space to learn from their mistakes. I think one of the big mistakes we're making now, whether it's women reacting to men or black people reacting to white people, is just focusing so much on the past and hanging hanging on those negative experiences and letting them fester. And when we let them fester and we continue to look in the rearview mirror, It keeps us from looking forward. And it keeps us from taking advantage of the promise of progress that is really in front of us, that's really, that's really possible. I was in Memphis, the National Civil Rights Museum, where Martin Luther King died at the Lorraine Hotel. I was there this summer. And sometimes it's easy to forget just how far we've come. You know, that museum was amazing because it took you on a journey from the slave ships in the 16th century to like 1970. And when you think that black people, my people used to be chattel like a home or or a car. And now how we're able to, we've we've had a black president, we've had two Supreme court justices, a woman who was national security advisor and secretary of state, this is how far we've come. And we can go so much further I look at where I am now. I'm I'm a lawyer. I went to Princeton and Harvard Law. I'm living in a place I never thought would welcome me. I have a white partner. Who would have ever dreamed this was possible? It doesn't mean that we've we don't have plenty of work to do. We do have a lot of work to do. But in order for us to do this work, we have to at least acknowledge and accept and embrace all the good work we've done, and we also have to give space to the people who aren't perfect, but who have allowed this work to happen. So what I would encourage people to do and what we try to do at FAIR is to help people keep their hearts open, help them keep their minds open, to try to help them understand that open hearts and minds is the only way we will move forward. And it's not easy. I don't I don't pretend to, to tell people that it's going to be a simple task. It's not, it's, it's, it's been difficult for me at times, but it's it's really the only way I know. And I, I again, I think it's the way that Martin Luther King would have instructed us.
0: Well, Monica, we are taping this during Hanukkah. We are about to go into the Christmas festive season. This is the last podcast for 2023. The last word of the year goes to you. What do you hope people will meditate on this this holiday season?
1: We all have much more in common then separates us. We need to fixate on what brings us together and not fixate on our differences. We are one, never forget that.
0: Well, Monica, thank you so much for this interview today. Thank you for your work and uh, wishing you and your family the best for the holiday season.
1: And you as well, thank you so much.
0: Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley, and this week's episode is also produced by me. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at Tarahenley.Substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. And this is the last episode of 2023, but we look forward to seeing you all again in the new year, and we wish you all. All the best for the holiday season.